Hello, I'm Fraser and this is Mum Says It's My Turn. I hope you're well and ready for me to noodle right on into your brains for the next half an hour or so. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned we were going to have a guest on today. Unfortunately, he's had to rearrange, so for today you just get more of my dulcet tones. If you're feeling disappointed, then Winnie has something he'd like to say. (laughs) Good one, Winnie. So what's new? Has anyone played Helldivers 2 yet? Helldivers 2 made quite a lot of news over the last week or so. If you haven't heard of it, it's a brand new third-person shooter game where you play as one of an elite squadron uh, battling aliens across the galaxy. Pretty simple premise. The game's tagline is the galaxy's last line of offense, which is cute. I haven't played it yet, but it looks like a lot of fun and has definitely been well-received. It's been so heavily featured in the news because due to its seemingly unexpected massive popularity, they sold over a million copies in the first few days, the game's servers have been completely unable to accommodate everyone who wants to play. So there have been a lot of long waits to get into a game, which feels kind of cheeky, right? Like if you've paid for a game, you expect to be able to play it. This has led to another issue, which is that the shortage of availability has led to hoarding. And you might ask, well, how does hoarding work in the context of a video game? Basically, players are managing to get into the game. They're having their fun, playing it for a few hours, whatever. But instead of then logging out to let someone else have a go, they're staying online, inactive, until they then want to play again. So saving themselves the wait the next time. Outrageous, right? (laughs) So basically, the servers are absolutely bursting at the seams, full of players who aren't even playing the game, who then, in turn, drive up the wait times, thus exacerbating the problem, etc, etc. And it's basically giving me terrible flashbacks to early lockdown toilet roll shortages. Fascinating stuff, though. Some people have been naturally kind of mad at the devs, but in fairness... I don't think they anticipated the game's success. As far as I can tell, this is their most successful game by quite a wide margin. Anyway, if anyone has had a chance to play it, um, please let me know if I should get it myself. Although I'll probably wait till the servers clear up a smidge. The BAFTAs were just over a week ago. The big winner was Oppenheimer, picking up Best Film, Best Actor for Killian Murphy, Best Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr., Best Direction for Chris Nolan, Best Original Score, Best Editing, and Best Cinematography. So it really cleaned house there, doing kind of similar to how it did at the Golden Globes. Poor Things also won a number of awards, with Best Actress going to Emma Stone. Uh, It also won the award for Special Visual Effects, Best Costume Design, Best Hair and Makeup, and Best Production Design. And Zone of Interest picked up a few awards as well with Best British Film, Best Film Not in English and Best Sound. Haven't actually seen Zone of Interest yet, but it's it's right at the top of my list, um, especially now that it's won a few awards as well. It's been kind of an uh, interesting awards season. I'm going to do a more detailed look at the Oscar nominations in our next episode, including my predictions. uh, So make sure to check that out. But what about this episode? Well... Today, in the spirit of recognising excellent movies, I wanted to take a look at some of what I consider to be perfect scenes from some of my favourite films. How do you know whether a scene is perfect? It's obvious, because I say so. 
but really, I think we all know what a perfect scene is. And you can all think of one off the top of your heads, I'm sure. A perfect scene is one of those moments in a film that is just so good, you can't fault it. It's one of those surprisingly rare moments where just everyone nails it. The director, the actors, the cinematographer, the music, the set, the costumes. Basically, you have no notes on it. It's usually, although not always, the climax of a movie. And the reason it hits so hard is often because the whole movie has been building up to this one scene. And it's memorable, sticking in your mind as this perfect moment. It is kind of subjective, of course. But for the most part, I'd say it's usually pretty hard to argue with. And when I chat to people about this, mostly Winnie, it's generally unanimous that a scene is perfect. And we love perfect scenes. Uh, Mum says it's my turn. And they will come up again and again on this podcast as we discover new ones and rediscover old ones. So if you have a perfect scene that you love, then let me know. Maybe we'll talk about it on an episode and I'll tell you whether you're right or not. Before we start, a quick warning. Spoilers ahead for all of the movies that I talk about today. We're talking about perfect scenes here, and these often come at pivotal moments in a movie. That being said, none of these are particularly new movies, and I'm hoping you'll have seen a few of them. But if you do hear me talking about a movie that you don't want spoiled, pause this, go watch the movie, and then come back. Right, let's get into it. So the first scene I wanted to talk about is the scene at Pelennor Fields in Lord of the Rings Return of the King. This will be probably one that is not a huge surprise, uh, especially if you've seen the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Specifically, Theoden's speech to the armies of Rohan before they ride into battle against the orc armies of Mordor. Amongst Lord of the Rings fans, this scene is pretty widely regarded as one of, if not the best scenes in the Lord of the Rings movies. Basically, if you've been living under a rock and you haven't seen this movie, or maybe you just can't remember it, the army of Rohan has arrived to try and save the city of Minas Tirith. They're pretty sure that they're riding to their deaths, and their king, Theoden, makes a pretty rousing speech before they charge the enemy. It's such an amazing scene, and it still gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. I think it's something about the sheer gravity and the scale of the scene, combined with its very cinematic nature, and a couple of just perfect deliveries from Bernard Hill, predominantly, who plays Theoden, but also from Miranda Otto, who played Eowyn. Its cinematic nature really comes from the epic, wide shots of the army and the cities plus this very rousing score playing in the background it's just really like a masterwork of of cinema i feel like this speech is sometimes overlooked in favor of the aragorn speech towards the end of the movie you know that i see in your eyes that speech that was a terrible aragorn impression by the way and to be fair the the aragorn speech i think maybe the words are more impactful and cool but it's the emotion of this speech that I think just really gets me you might not have seen it but there's a video uh, I saw recently of a screening of Return of the King that has a live orchestra playing the score which is pretty epic to begin with honestly Lord of the Rings obviously has one of the greatest movie scores of all time but when it gets to the bit 
at the end of the speech where Theoden is like, death, death. The whole auditorium watching the screening all starts screaming, death. It's it's very, very epic. Um, and yeah, like I say, goosebumps every time. Speaking of the soundtrack, in this scene, the piece of music that's playing is fittingly titled The Battle of Pelennor Fields or Battle at Pelennor Fields. And it's a very epic piece of music that definitely adds to the drama of the scene. I mentioned just a minute ago that sometimes a perfect scene is so great because it's had an entire movie to build up to it. In a sense, this one scene has, you know, three whole movies of build up leading up to it, including characters that have been there since the very beginning, who, you know, you're rooting for and the the idea that they're kind of courageously riding to their deaths you know it's very stirring very moving if you really want to feel the full force of this scene uh i can't recommend enough doing an all three movies back-to-back marathon everyone should be doing that at least once a week um (laughs) yeah really is a top tier way to spend a weekend now on to my next perfect scene and to a fight scene of Equally epic proportions. The fight between Steve Carroll, Ryan Gosling, Kevin Bacon and John Carroll Lynch in Crazy Stupid Love. It was actually watching this scene again recently that inspired talking about perfect scenes. If you haven't seen Crazy Stupid Love, it's really a guilty pleasure of mine. It's just a good rom-com. What all romantic comedies, in my opinion, should aspire to be. As well as Steve Carroll and Ryan Gosling, it also stars Julianne Moore and Emma Stone. As a movie, it's genuinely funny. It has a lot of heart, is well written and well acted. It follows Steve Carroll's character, a guy named Cal, a recently separated middle-aged man who's kind of lost his identity. He meets Ryan Gosling's character, who is handsome, cool, well-dressed, charismatic, It's kind of an unusual role for Ryan Gosling, I know. He takes Steve Carroll under his wing and basically teaches him how to pick up women. Meanwhile, Julianne Moore, who is Steve Carroll's wife, is dating Kevin Bacon, who we hate in this movie. There's also a whole side plot where John Carroll Lynch's daughter has a huge crush on Steve Carroll, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, all of these things come to a head in this perfect scene towards the end of the movie involving a very sad, very middle-aged fist fight. You have this very cute white picket fence, wholesome American setting, and chaos ensues amongst the male cast members, with the scene escalating exponentially from this cute backyard family gathering into John Carroll Lynch bursting onto the scene, doing an epic rugby tackle of Steve Carroll. He then rips the miniature golf windmill out of the ground, the notorious David Lindhagen, played by Kevin Bacon, shows up, gets popped by Gosling, and everything just descends into a bundle. And the whole thing is smattered with some very funny deliveries, particularly from Steve Carroll and Ryan Gosling, who is, yet again, sublime. The fistfight is funny, but it's not what makes this a perfect scene. What makes it perfect is some very satisfying reveals that you realise the whole film has been building towards very cleverly. It's really funny and particularly satisfying because of all the setup throughout the movie that comes together in this one scene. It's great because it will, you know, reveal something 
allow you to process it. And then another thing happens. Uh, and this just happens several times in a row. You may not have seen Crazy Stupid Love. Even if you're not partial to a romantic comedy, I would strongly recommend you give this movie a try. It is very good. Another scene I wanted to mention is from a more recent film. The Menu was released in 2022. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy, Ray Fiennes, Nicholas Holt. The movie itself, I, I really enjoyed. It's a comedy horror, I guess. It's a critique of elitism and also, I think, just kind of a critique of pretentious fine dining. The premise is basically a ragtag group of upper-class goons and one out-of-place young woman travel to a remote island to one of the most exclusive restaurants in the world, basically. The guests, however, soon realise that they are trapped on the island and that their extravagant dining experience is perhaps a little more nefarious than they had originally assumed. The scene in this film that I think is perfect comes towards the end of it. Uh, it's referred to as the cheeseburger scene. And if you've seen the film, you'll know the scene I'm referring to. Basically, after an evening of serving, to quote the film, fancy deconstructed avant bullshit, Ray Fine's character prepares a classic American cheeseburger for Anya Taylor-Joy's character. And Ray Fiennes is just so good in this scene. He plays the villain, I guess, in the menu. And this scene represents a very cathartic redemption for his character, a sort of return to self. The food prep scenes are so satisfying to watch. I was actually reading that Dominique Crenn, who is a three Michelin star chef based in the US, prepared all of the food for this movie. Um, also, the cast that play the kitchen staff were all taught exactly what they should be doing at any given point during the food prep so that it would always be visually correct. But this moment where he is preparing this amazing looking burger, all of the staff are standing around watching. There's angelic choral music playing. You know, the preparation of this simple burger feels very sacred. It's almost like tongue in cheek how dramatic it is. But I think that's kind of the point. Um, and it makes this seem very satisfying to watch. A lot of attention and detail went into the food preparation scenes for this movie and it's predominantly you know your typical Michelin star fine dining kind of food there's a lot of gels and mousses and things of that nature so when they do these food prep scenes you have these amazing looking shots of like tiny little precise details being prepared on a plate um, and the same sort of cinematic love and attention is given to this burger prep scene which is really funny you know you have all these very dramatic shots but it's just, you know, a plain old regular beef patty going down on a griddle with a slice of American cheese. And it all just looks very tantalizing and, and greasy. But I just love how it's kind of treated with the same respect as the Michelin star fine dining food prep scenes from earlier in the movie. I just love the acting in this scene. I love I love everything about the way the scene comes together. I think Ray Fiennes is just so good in this movie and in this scene in particular, it's all very subtle, but, um, you know, his character, when he gives Anya Taylor-Joy's character the burger, it's the first time in this movie that he seems to have cared what anyone has thought of his cooking. 
just very satisfying little details in the way that he acts this scene. Anya Taylor-Joy is also great, but this this scene is particularly made, I think, by how Ray Fiennes reacts to the things that Anya Taylor-Joy's character is saying. My only potentially minor criticism is that Anya Taylor-Joy's character asks if the burger comes with fries, and Ray Fiennes says, do you prefer julienne or crinkle cut? And Anya Taylor-Joy chooses crinkle cut. I, I would love to know if there's anyone out there who, given that option, would choose crinkle cut over julienne fries. Maybe I maybe it's been too long since I've had crinkle cut, but I feel like that's an obvious choice. Anyway, apart from that tiny gripe, um, it really is a perfect scene. I think food scenes and fight scenes actually often come up as perfect scenes. And I was trying to think about why, you know, beyond it just being personal preference, and that's what I like. And I think it has something to do with just how meticulous both of these kind of scenes have to be if you think about the filmmaking process and maybe that's why like so much thought and effort goes into a food scene or a fight scene in terms of choreography and and things like that so maybe that's why it often leads to perfect scenes anyway if you haven't seen the menu i can strongly strongly recommend you guys go and check that out it's a great film the next scene on my list comes from one of the great cinematic achievements of I would say the last hundred years Shrek 2 I'm obviously being a little tongue-in-cheek although unironically Shrek 2 is kind of a masterpiece it's one of the rare examples of a sequel to a great film that is actually even better than its predecessor at least in my opinion it was to that point the first sequel ever nominated for best animated feature at the Oscars It was also the biggest box office success of that year. And I don't want to freak you out, but that film turns 20 years old this year, by the way. Hmm, feeling old yet? The scene in that movie that I consider to be perfect is the storming of the castle scene towards the end of the movie. Basically, Shrek and his gang are trying to get into the castle in the heart of Far, Far Away in order to get to Princess Fiona and disrupt the evil fairy godmother's plan to marry Fiona off to Prince Charming. It's a scene that has absolutely no right going as hard as it does. It's got great action, emotional sacrifices. It's got dancing. It's got gags up the wazoo. um, And of course, it's all underpinned by the sickest cover of I Need a Hero that you've ever heard. Um, I had to look this up, but Jennifer Saunders does actually sing all of her own parts in that movie. Like I said, the Shrek films never waste an opportunity for a gag. You know, there'll there'll always be something on screen, which is a joke. In this scene, you have a giant gingerbread man roaring like Godzilla. And by the way, they actually use the same raw sound effect from the original Japanese classic. So you've got this giant biscuit man storming a castle. Of course, they don't use boiling oil as a defense but they're using steamed milk instead. (laughs) There's a great line with uh, one of the guards is like, more heat, less foam. It just cracks me up every time. It's also self-referential. You have this moment where the giant gingerbread man gets hit by a flaming catapult on one of his gumdrop buttons. And the regular sized gingerbread man, Jinji, shouts, not the gumdrop buttons, like the line we're all used to hearing. And then the giant gingerbread man finally gets taken down. He falls into the moat 
and finishes with an E.T. reference. It's just it's just packed to the brim of references and gags. You know, I was watching the scene back. The animation looks amazing, considering this film is like 20 years old. And the Shrek movies were kind of early adopters of this fully CGI animation approach. It looks incredible still today. And that all really shows in this scene. It's probably the most sort of action-packed few minutes in this film. You know, it's shot at night. There's this party going on. There's lots of flashing lights. There's the sieging of the castle with flaming catapults and all sorts. But, you know, visually, it's it's an amazing piece of animation, which still really stands up today. You've probably all seen this movie, but maybe not for a while. So recommend going back and watching this movie again. It's an absolute classic. Okay, so slightly different vibe for my next entry on this list. The ambush at the border scene in Sicario. So if you haven't seen Sicario, it's a quality movie from Denis Villeneuve, the guy who's directing the Dune movies. It follows an FBI agent played by Emily Blunt, who is unwittingly recruited into a very shady, questionable CIA operation, um, which includes at one point retrieving a suspect from police custody across the border in Juarez, Mexico. To me, this scene is just a masterpiece of tension. It builds up over several minutes and all kind of culminates in this crazy scene right at the border crossing. Interesting fact about this scene, closing an actual border for several days at a time to shoot this scene would have been completely impractical. So they actually built a replica of the Juarez border near to Mexico City in order to shoot this scene. One thing I like about this scene is that it's so chaotic, right? Like literal shootouts in packed traffic, US operatives shooting Mexican citizens inside of Mexico. But the scene doesn't feel chaotic. The the characters we're following are all very cool, very composed, like it's just another day at the office. Even, honestly, even the locals seem to be underreacting to what's happened. We only get a sense of how insane this scene is by Emily Blunt's portrayal of her character, who can't believe what she's witnessing. And then it will cut to like Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, who are just so unfazed by everything that's happening. I think one of the reasons why I really love Denis Villeneuve as a director is that you get the impression he has such a clear sense of how a scene should go down. And he he seems to have a very meticulous, very precise way of bringing his vision to life on the screen. And I think that shows in a scene like this one where everything is executed so precisely and it just feels like a textbook execution of a scene. I was about to say this this was the first movie I saw Emily Blunt in that made me just love her as an actor, but actually that's not true. The Devil Wears Prada was the first thing I saw her in and I was just like, yes. But in all seriousness, Emily Blunt absolutely kills this role the whole film is told through the perspective of Emily Blunt's character, but she's actually quite a passive character. The film just kind of happens around her. Nothing she does progresses the storyline too much. Typically, when this happens in movies, it discredits the character and also makes the movie quite unengaging, which is absolutely not the case in Sicario, which I feel is a testament to the way Emily Blunt plays this character and also how Denis Villeneuve directed it. Also, the movie was shot by Roger Deakins, who 
is one of the greatest cinematographers alive right now. And the way he shot this scene in particular with, you know, long range shots from right across the border and helicopter footage, it all adds, you know, a sense of realism to this scene combined with then very claustrophobic shots from inside of the car, which I think then really adds to the tension and discomfort of the scene. Barring June, Sicario is probably my favourite Denis Villeneuve movie. Um, So if you haven't seen it, absolutely, please do check it out. There was a Sicario 2, which follows on from the first one. It wasn't directed by Denis Villeneuve. Still very good, um, but not quite as good as the first one, in my opinion. One more perfect scene on my list is from The Matrix. Now, if you haven't seen The Matrix at this point, honestly, what are you even doing with your life? This whole movie is a vibe. And the scene I want to talk about is the lobby shootout scene. This is a perfect action scene. There's not really much to explain here. The two main characters, Neo and Trinity, clad in leather body suits and trench coats and armed with like a million guns are attempting to rescue their buddy Morpheus. I love this scene because honestly, it's just so cool. Like, especially as a teenager watching this for the first time, my mind was blown. The whole movie has such a hey F you man kind of energy. (laughs) In this scene, Neo puts his duffel bag bomb through the x-ray machine, walks through the metal detector and is like, oh, these guns? And then it's like, hiya, take that underpaid middle-aged security guy. And then this leads to an epic few minutes of literally non-stop gunfire. It has a great use of slow motion in this scene, although interestingly, only Neo and Trinity are ever shown in slow motion, possibly representing that they are able to process what is happening faster than their opponents, or also possibly just because it makes them look cool. There's also no CGI in this scene, with the exception of removing wires, which were used for a few of the stunts, everything else is practical effects. And I think this is potentially why it still looks so good today. You know, it's all very grounded in reality and the actors can actually interact with things that are happening around them, like wall tiles exploding right next to their face. It definitely just gives it way fewer opportunities to have aged badly. I was reading it took 10 days to film this scene. One of the main reasons being that resetting in between each take could take upward of like six hours, basically just putting the wall tiles back on the wall. So you can understand why studios prefer to do CGI these days. Like I get it. It's quicker. It's probably cheaper, but it just doesn't look the same. It doesn't look as good uh, as physical practical effects. There's one shot in particular where Carrie Ann Moss has to do a sort of run up of the wall and then flip sideways and then take a guy out. Um, And that in particular, they really wanted to hit it in one take because resetting that shot with the tiles and everything, there was a lot in the frame. So kudos to Carrie Ann Moss for doing this stunt herself and then also smashing it first time. What a legend. One thing I think is always funny uh, watching scenes, especially like this, anyone who's ever handled a gun before is always very quick to point out like, yeah, it's absolutely not physically possible to even hold two machine guns out at arm's length, let alone be firing them simultaneously. Um, And yeah, they do actually use very, very lightweight gun props for scenes like this, Um, except for when they're being dropped. Who knew? I think this scene kind of 
encapsulates what the Matrix films were trying to do. I read that the Wachowskis talked about when they were making this film, typically you have thinking films with not enough action or action films with not enough thinking. And they were trying to do, you know, an action film with plenty of thinking. And this scene <laughs> represents that action, right? And, you know, they absolutely nailed it. By the way, a cartwheel has never been cool before, but when you cartwheel to pick up a machine gun, that instantly makes it cool. So the final scene on my list is strategically placed, since I think this scene might be one of the craziest finales to a film maybe ever. Now, I'm a huge Tarantino fan um, and could almost certainly find several perfect scenes from his back catalogue. Maybe we'll do that at some point, but... This one is a particular standout for me. For other Tarantino fans out there, you might be wondering what scene am I talking about? The anticipation heightens the pleasure, I know. It is, of course, the home invasion scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For anyone who hasn't seen this movie, the whole film itself is quite subtle. It's kind of un-Tarantino-esque in some respects, although... You know, if you've seen Death Proof, it's definitely got some similarities to that for sure. You have essentially a fairly relaxed film where Leonardo DiCaprio plays a fictional actor who has kind of faded into obscurity. And then Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate move in next door. There's also what seems like a weird side plot about Brad Pitt, who plays Leo's stunt double, tangling with a mysterious hippie commune. And then it very suddenly goes from zero to 100 in this final fight scene where, you know, everything from the film comes together. This scene hits you in the face with full force in terms of the actual fight itself and also just the intense level of planning and setup by Tarantino to tie what seemed like insignificant details of the film all together. So the hippies, for anyone who hadn't guessed, turned out to be members of the Manson family. And they show up at Roman Polanski's place to commit the historical murder of Sharon Tate. But they get sidetracked by a very uptight, margarita-fueled Leo DiCaprio um, and end up heading to his house instead. They are then met with the fury of Brad Pitt, who is tripping balls, by the way, at this point in the film, and his American pit bull, Brandy. We love Brandy. So one Manson family member, played by Austin Butler, gets savaged by Brandy. Another takes a very satisfying unopened can of dog food to the face and gets savaged by Brandy. There's a very unfortunate incident involving one hippie's head and a wall-mounted telephone, uh, and in fact, several other household objects. Finally, one of them meets their end coming face-to-face -face with Leonardo DiCaprio's flamethrower, which was referenced earlier in the film. It is chef's kiss perfection. Although I have to say that final hippie was a little overdone. But really, I think this scene is just a perfect example of patient filmmaking, you know, laying a ton of groundwork, almost three hours of groundwork, all for one epic, satisfying payoff. And I think that's why this is just has to be on my perfect scenes list. In true Tarantino fashion, this scene remains really quite funny, despite being very graphic and violent. So you've got Austin Butler, who plays a character who takes himself very seriously, is trying to be very menacing and threatening across from Brad Pitt, who, like I say, is tripping on acid and is not taking anything seriously. 
I actually think this is one of Brad Pitt's funniest roles that he's played. And his deliveries are just, you know, impeccable, really, really funny. He actually won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this role, um, which was definitely deserved. And yeah, the the violence in this movie, I mean, there's obviously a lot of controversy around Tarantino's use of violence. It is quite hard to look at in this scene. Uh, and in fact, we, we do cover Winnie's eyes when we watch this. Um, like I say, we love Brandy, but she's maybe not a great role model for him. So definitely a perfect scene. It's a hard recommend from me. If you haven't seen it before, go and watch it. If you have, watch it again. So there you go. The first few perfect scenes as adjudicated by me. The scenes have received my holy blessing. Let me know if you agree or disagree with any of my choices. And like I mentioned, do let me know if you have any other suggestions for perfect scenes. And we can for sure talk about them in a future episode. So thanks for stopping by today. I hope you'll come back and join me and Winnie for the next episode where we'll be talking about our Oscar predictions. Bye.